Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Hymn number six is our hymn of praise. seated. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you again this evening conscious of our needfulness still. We have worshipped you once, but uh, we, we still find that uh, we, we have great need uh, to be instructed and to be strengthened and to be encouraged. And, uh, and in reality, we could stand for a whole lot more. As in the, in the time of the Reformation in Wittenberg, three services on Sunday and one every day of the week. It's difficult to imagine that much, but Lord, it, it, it is what we find in times of revival. That uh, the desire and the hunger for preaching becomes incredible and enormous. And, and, uh, and your supplying of preachers and preaching also uh, multiplies throughout the church. Uh, so, Father, we aren't there. We would love to be there. We would love to see such times in our own day. But we continue to thank you uh, that you do supply our hunger and our thirst with two sermons and two worship service services uh, and that you continue to supply the needs of your people week by week. Uh, Father, as we keep on saying, we, we hardly know what to expect in the coming year. Uh, things seem uh, well, we don't we, are, we certainly are not. Uh, optimistic. 
But Lord, who is to say what would happen? And and so long as we're able to meet, then our greatest treasure is still in our possession. Father, let us cherish it and let us through uh, the means of grace, uh, all that we do in worship, come to, pre- uh, to, 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 to prize and to treasure Christ more and more, our greatest treasure of all. And learn what it is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own derived through the law, but the righteousness of faith, the gift of God. And with Paul, having obtained that, uh, to go on, to press on to the upward call of the prize in Christ Jesus. Lord, uh, the reality, as we know, is that we still, uh, we still are on the way, as we saw this morning. Now, we could say there's a long way to go, but that wouldn't be honest. The reality is that there's but a short way to go. Just a little longer, a little while more, and we shall be with you at last. Father, we pray that you would give your church persevering grace and that you would give us uh, that hope which causes us uh, to go on and not to just go on with a bit of drudgery, with our heads downcast, but looking upward and forward eagerly, looking for the things which await us, uh, not so easily entangled and ensnared by sin, but triumphantly marching forth by faith. Lord, we know that the church uh, is, is, is able and equipped to have such a faith and have such a witness. But we ask you that you would, well, that you would supply such things and that you would graciously condescend to lift up our drooping heads and to give us greater faith and boldness. We ask you, Lord, even that you might look after our bodies and our temporal needs, the need for an income, the need for meals. I pray that you would give us our daily bread day by day and week by week. You would continue to supply the families uh, uh, with all that they need and that you would give us even, uh, especially the heads of homes, uh, a, a large portion of wisdom to guide and to lead their families through this world. Uh, we do not live in an age where, where Christianity is, is esteemed. Uh, we do feel to be but a few, but a remnant in a foreign land. And Lord, you've often prospered the church in such times. We pray that you might do so again and that our our witness might grow mighty, not only in this place, but also in the homes. And as we go out into the world, might uh, we we always be uh, spreading the leaven of Christianity wherever we go. And so, Father, as we close our prayer, we are thankful to know that you hear all that we say and that you are even able to discern the secret desires of the heart. And so we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. We'll just be dividing up the scripture reading this evening, the sermon reading, I mean, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, and then the first portion of chapter 12, of chapter 13, I mean. So beginning in verse 43 to the end of the chapter, Exodus chapter 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money. When you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells, with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Let us stand now and sing together the doxology. Praise God from seated and open to the front of your hymnal with me and read along as we recite the Nicene Creed. 
Now saying together, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now as we prepare for uh, the reading of God's word, let us stand together and sing hymn number 501. Going on with the reading, Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. And hear the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of uh, of strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten eaten on this day. You are going out in the month of Abib. 
And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanite and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So you shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn and uh, about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in, in the land of Egypt, both the for, firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the for, firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontless between your eyes, for by strength of hand that the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for all of your word. Every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, more precious to us in the air that we breathe or the bread that we eat, which sustains our life. Would you sustain us, O God, by your word, both read and preached in the spiritual inner man, and cause us to grow in grace by this means we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we aren't able to follow the chapter headings in neat fashion. Here is a clear case where the more natural division of the text falls elsewhere. These three things we read of here belong together. The law of the Passover, the law of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and of the Firstborn clearly comprise one unified text. On the face of it, we have two old regulations recounted and then one new one, uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Already, we had clear regulations set down for those. And then here, uh, there is one additional one, and that is the devotion or the consecration of the firstborn. But upon closer examination, uh, that appears to be an oversimplification of the text. The reality we discover is far more complex. These three laws... All will will govern the life of Israel once she enters the land. And as they are given here, they account for a new dynamic not present in the prior regulations stated earlier in the chapter, namely that the presence or or that the people as they left uh, the land of Egypt did so with the presence of uh, foreigners. They left the land a mixed multitude, we read in the prior text. As Kyle and Dillich say, these regulations were supplementary. That is, these new regulations concerning the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, going on with the quote, only needed by the fact that a crowd of foreigners attached themselves to the Israelites. Well, in reality, what we're considering this evening all has to do with that fact. If we were to ask what possible difference would that make, we need only to consider the nature and the purpose of the Passover in the first place. The Passover was connected with Israel's separation from the nations, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It marked out Israel's redemption from the wicked nation, Egypt. It was to be, therefore, in its observance, a celebration of remembrance, whereby the people of God remembered how they came into a distinct existence as a nation when God in judgment passed by. Yes, but as Kyle and Dillich say, If the Passover was still to retain this signification, of course, no foreigner could participate in it. You see, that's the dilemma that is resolved by these new regulations. 
the dilemma which faced this newly forming nation. And you understand that and you understand the purpose of this text. If the Passover in particular, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, represented their cleaning out the old leaven of Egypt and the sin of the nations, what to do with these foreigners that attach themselves to them, especially with regard to the point in question, namely the ongoing observance of the Passover as a religious festival, as a, an act of remembrance whereby the Lord again made Israel a distinct entity from the nations. There was her dilemma, which is dealt with here. And we see two plain statements. The first is made in uh, verse 43. We might call that the first regulation, where it simply says, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. As a general rule, these foreigners were to be excluded from the observance of the Passover. And for obvious reasons, based upon what we have considered already. Not only the Passover, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed. Again, understanding the true significance of the Passover, we have little difficulty seeing why this was so. It was only necessary here to make it plain for Israel to see. These foreigners who go along with you, they are not to partake of the Passover. Verse 43. However, a second statement adds additional clarity. Not as to the feast itself, but as to the nature of Israel's distinct fellowship from the nations. What was it, in fact, that set Israel apart as a distinct entity? Well, look at verse 48. Let me see here. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. That is an interesting thing to observe. And it tells us a great deal again about what it was that set Israel apart. So long as uh, the foreigner attached himself to Israel and maintained his old religious identity. Let's say he was an Egyptian, which these people were. He was to be kept separate from the religious elements of Israel's fellowship and her national life. But if this foreigner was willing to undergo circumcision, the rite whereby one was initiated and brought into the covenant, uh, analogous to baptism in the Christian church, then he was able to participate. There was, we read in the next verse, verse 49, one law that was to govern both the native Jew and the one incorporated by circumcision. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. And the law was, if we are to take the two regulations and combine them, only the circumcised may partake of the feast. This placed the priority of the religious life of Israel, not upon native birth or native descent, but upon circumcision, the religious rite of circumcision. It was a reminder that as a feast or a festival, its significance was religious, not ethnic or racial. The foreigner had every right to partake so long as he attached himself to Israel as a spiritual body and a spiritual nation through circumcision. It was this right, this right, not natural birth, we discover, that made one a true Israelite. Let me go on with a quote from Kylan Dillich. They say, as it was by virtue of a divine call and not through natural descent that Israel had become the people of Jehovah, and as it was destined in that uh, capacity to be a blessing to all nations, the attitude assumed towards the foreigners was not to be an altogether repelling one. In other words, there was a possibility here that Israel as a distinct nation might uh, take in some of these foreigners into her fellowship, as indeed we find here. Israel, in her very formation and constitution, was to see herself first and foremost as the people of God. And this always opened the door to her expansion. An incorporation of new members, supposing such people were genuinely converted and thus included themselves in the true people of God. In this, Israel typified 
not the nations as we find them today, but the church. Israel typified the church. And oh, that we could see this. How much confusion might easily be set aside by a little bit of clear thinking. If we could understand that one point in our reading of the Old Testament. Israel typified not nations, but the church. Israel was, as she was constituted as a nation, was the people of God. Now think of the way in which she interacted with the foreigner here and try to understand then the point along these lines. So often we are told Israel's attitude toward the foreigner or the stranger ought to be assumed by America as a nation if we are to be a just nation. They treat such statements as a kind of border policy or an immigration policy. And then they seek to guilt Christians for not having greater empathy for the foreigner who seeks to come into our nation by any means. I know you're familiar with that. That kind of thinking is very common today. Well, I won't make any comment on immigration policies. My whole point here is that that has nothing to do with the text. What we find in the Old Testament is not a border policy. It isn't an immigration policy. It is rather, as I say, a picture of the church. How it is that people are to be incorporated into the people of God rightly. There may be secondary features which can sometime obscure her true identity. This isn't true only of Israel. We might think of the Presbyterians. We Presbyterians are historically primarily white folks whose heirs came from Scotland into this country, which is largely my own ancestry. But this is purely an accident of history. It's not the essence of Presbyterianism. And it's not at all meant to exclude those who do not share this ancestry from being Presbyterians themselves. And the same was true of Israel. There were external factors that you found among them. Most of them were Jews. Now I'm speaking of them in an ethnic or a racial sense. But this was not meant to exclude others on the basis of natural descent. Her fellowship, we discover, was never defined by such things, not at least in a religious sense. That Israel later fell into this error does not mean it was ever her true purpose or identity. She was always meant to be the people of God. And anyone for whom that was true was welcome as part of her fellowship and religious life. So in her attitude toward the foreigner or the stranger in her midst, she resembled or typified what the church would later become, namely a spiritual and a religious fellowship guided by one law, a shared life founded upon a basic commitment to observe and adhere to God's law, which is exactly what we find when we come to the New Testament church. We find one people guided by one law and equally a commitment to cut off those who do not adhere to this law. We need to notice this as well. How foolish the social justice adherents seem when they claim this is about immigration. Well, tell me what to do with this stranger who doesn't adhere to God's law, if you take this as your text. No, this isn't about immigration or border policies. I'm embarrassed for those who think it is. This is about a spiritual fellowship which is at once radically inclusive, including all who are spiritually uh, regenerate, while at the same time radically exclusive, excluding all who are not. A further confirmation of this thought, seeing in this a principle that is later found in the church, both of inclusion and exclusion, we ought to consider what our Lord says in Matthew chapter 18 about church discipline. There is little doubt that the New Testament church was a spiritual fellowship made of people uh, from all sorts of nations. National descent does not come in at all. Hence what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. These things are not determinative of one's membership in the spiritual fellowship we call the church. What matters, Paul says, is not that we are circumcised or uncircumcised, but that we are spiritually regenerate. Chapter 6 verse 15 of Galatians, I can't remember it exactly, so let me turn there. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. What matters is that you're born again, he's saying, just as Jesus said to Nicodemus. 
Yes, but look at how Jesus describes the act of excommunicating someone. That is, excluding someone from our fellowship. What makes someone included is that he is regenerate. He's a new creation. But consider how Jesus speaks of the principle of exclusion in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Listen carefully to the language and think of our text. He says, And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a stranger, a foreigner, a Gentile. Isn't that interesting? Let him in essence be... A foreigner to you as we find him here, the man in the text, who had a merely external relationship to the people of God, but was not a true member. That to me confirms that this is exactly what is going on here in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. The same principle we later find in the New Testament church in Matthew 18 and in other places. What Jesus says there when he uses the same language is a commentary on the true nature of Israel's fellowship, which was, as I say, primarily spiritual rather than national or ethnic, and was typical of what the church would later become. And so because of this, we ought to reflect upon the true nature of Israel's religious identity, which was becoming distinct now through the Exodus event. What was it that really bound her together as a people? We have many clues here, but the, but the clear light of the New Testament helps us even more. We think of how the Jews gloried in their natu- uh, natural descent. We have Abraham as our father, they would tell Jesus. No, you don't. Your father is the devil, he told them. The true sons of Abraham are those who share his faith in me. Which is, in essence, uh, the conflict between Jesus and the Jews in John chapter 8. They gloried in natural descent But Jesus says, the true Jew, the true son of Abraham is the one who believes in me. And so he indicates there that the the real relationship to Father Abraham was always spiritual, not just now that he came, but that was always the case. And that those who shared his faith were always his true children. That's what we saw last time in Galatians chapter three. And so the spiritual was always primary, again, not just in the dawning of the new covenant, but always and took precedence over the natural, even this nation and this tribe, the sons of Abraham. We might also find other clear statements in the New Testament, such as what is said, for instance, in Romans chapter two. And again, Paul is there reflecting upon the Jews as a nation, as a people. Romans chapter two. I might read the whole chapter, but uh, for the sake of time, verses 25 through 29, listen to what he says. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he Fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You see... Paul says the true Israelite is inward. What does it matter if one has a kind of external claim to these things, whether by natural descent from Abraham or through circumcision, if his heart is not right with God? Equally, we have this statement in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. This is something that we saw throughout our study of Genesis 
that not all who descended from Abraham uh, through the flesh or through natural descent were his proper seed, the, the spiritual heirs of the promise. It was only those whom God chose who were the children of promise. Which means that only God can make one a child of promise. And so Paul will say in Romans chapter 9, it depends upon God and not upon man. All of this forces us to see the true nature of Israel as a nation. She was to be a religious people primarily. And like the visible church today, there were many false professors in her midst. Many who claimed a place through external rites and other means. But only those who were truly saved had a true place. What matters, as Paul says, is a new creation. The principle which we see is that of a spiritual nation and a spiritual people, which is equally true in both covenants. That's what we see here as we consider the place of the foreigner and the way in which he came to share in Israel's inheritance. Now, as a corollary to this, this is a secondary point, and it's almost not worth making, uh, but I'll make it anyways. I might also observe that in this basic order, circumcision first, then Passover, and never the opposite. You could not take the Passover unless you were circumcised first. And as we find that circumcision corresponds to baptism in the New Covenant, and the Passover corresponds to the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant, that the same order ought to be observed in the New Covenant. I mean that it would be wrong to give someone who wasn't baptized the Lord's Supper. For the same exact reason found here, that first one must be incorporated into the people of God through baptism before he can enjoy the meal. Now, why would I even take the time to say that? Perhaps that seems obvious to you, but I can tell you that it isn't obvious to everyone because I've had to spend some time over the years counseling people not to give their children the Lord's Supper until they've been baptized. We've had visitors from time to time who did this, and I had to make this point to them. As I say, from time to time. And so it does have relevance and it does need to be said. I'll say it again. Baptism first, then the Lord's Supper. The order is important. But then let me say a few words about these other two things. So much for the uh, the, uh, the the foreigner under uh, the regulations of the Passover. What about the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What stands out here as something new, since I, I think what we have in verses Three through seven uh, are basically a repetition of what we have already seen two weeks ago is what is said in verses eight through ten. Let me read those verses again. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Notice what the Lord is saying there. In telling them to keep the week of celebration. He highlights the centrality of the law of God in the life of the people of God. This is something that was meant to be called to mind in the observance of this ordinance. Something which Moses says you're to tell your sons and your daughters about. Something you talk about as you observe the feast. Again, I like how Kyle and Dillich put it. They say the law was so placed in the mouth as to be talked of continually by the reception of it into the heart and its continual fulfillment. As the origin and meaning of the festival were to be talked of in connection with the eating of unleavened bread, so conversation about the law of Jehovah was was, uh, introduced at the same time and the obligation to keep it renewed and brought vividly to mind. They were to talk of the law of God. They were to enjoy, as the Puritans called it, Christian conversation, especially at this time. It was to be a time uh, not only where they spoke of the law of God, but where they recounted the good things that the Lord had done. So, again, we see the spiritual significance of the meal, which is its true significance and would be made apparent the more they talked about it. We also notice here the structure of the covenant with regard to the giving and the observance of the law. Something that was especially memorialized by these ceremonies, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
What place does the law have in the people of God? Well, again, that would become clear if you just notice the structure and the order. We do this, verse 8, because of what the Lord has done. Let me read the verse again. You shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out from Egypt. The, the priority in the order was given to the Lord, what the Lord had done, not what man had done. So Israel here was to remember and celebrate and talk about God's deliverance, how it was that Israel as a nation came uh, into being. Not by her own works, but by God's grace demonstrated in the Passover and celebrated in the feast. That is what was being memorialized. And it was as part of her celebrating that she was to speak of and even to imbibe the law as part of her being. Not only observing it outwardly, but actually incorporating it inwardly as a spiritual principle. Let it be. As a sign to you on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, let it be in your mouth. More and more, let the law become a part of who you are as the people of God. This is what Paul was speaking of in Romans chapter 2. People who were thoroughly invested in the law of God. Not as an outward principle, but as an inward principle in connection with eating the meal. You might say they were to eat the law and let it become something that was inside of them. The true Jew is the inward one. And we find the same thing at Sinai, if you think of it, in the giving of the law. In the preface to the Ten Commandments, remember what the Lord says before he says anything about the law. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me and so forth. Again, notice the structure. Notice the order. He doesn't begin with the law. He clarifies that the place of the law of God and the life of the people of God is only the result of God's grace and God's deliverance. And it is only, beloved, with a proper appreciation of what comes first. Namely, the Lord's deliverance and the Lord's salvation, that the giving and the place of the law in our lives makes any sense at all. And we are kept from Israel's folly, which was to think that the end of the law was their own righteousness. God is not giving us a law to keep whereby we are saved. He is calling us to celebrate his salvation with a life that is consecrated to him in law keeping and holiness. The law seen here figuratively, as in verse 16 uh, also, as our constant companion. Let me read verse 16 as well. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlet between your eyes, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Something which is always with you. And we do this just as the Lord has consecrated to himself, ourselves, by his deliverance. Something we recognize and acknowledge by keeping the law. And so notice, notice the centrality of the law and the people of God. In the, in the life, I mean, of the people of God. But finally, the third regulation or the third law concerned the law of the firstborn, which is, uh, it occurs in two places, verses 1 and 2, and then again in 11 through 16. The significance here is in some sense obvious in the language itself. As the Lord struck the firstborn of Egypt, man and beast alike. So he demanded the firstborn of man and beast be consecrated to him in Israel. Here her sanctification as a nation was symbolized based upon her objective deliverance on the Passover night. This understanding is confirmed by the fact that God calls Israel his firstborn son in chapter 4, verse 22. Israel, uh, in a sense, you could say, was God's firstborn. The animals were to be sacrificed, the firstborn of the animals. The sons of men were to be dedicated as a kind of living and spiritual sacrifice that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, or Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Living spiritual sacrifices that we find in the New Covenant. Well, we find them here as well in the Old Covenant. Practically, the consecration of the firstborn sons at first meant that they were to be helpers to the priests. But this quickly fell out of practice as the Levites were alone to minister in the tabernacle. In the place of this, the parents 
were to redeem the firstborn sons from the service, which was binding upon them by paying a five shekels uh, redemption price to the priests as prescribed in Numbers chapter 3. But again, the real significance here is not so much the outward ceremony uh, as the inward principle or the spiritual. Again, we have in this a further indication of Israel's true purpose and nature, uh, nature as a people. Namely, that as uh, she who was the people of God distinct unto the Lord, uh, through this right or means she was to sustain continually a priestly character as a nation or a people. And by this right, all the families were to recognize their connection to the priesthood. The firstborn of every family. Indeed, this again calls to mind her connection not to the nations as we find them today, but to the church. The church typified in the life of Israel. What the church will later become is typified by this right in ancient Israel. The church as we find Peter describing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let me turn there and read that to you. He says, you are, and notice the old covenant language here. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you might, you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Do you realize that is equally and obviously also a description of Israel? And that is what the Lord was enabling them to see here in, in her constant connection to the priesthood. And it is this identity which Israel had and we share with her, that defines and clarifies our true purpose in relation to the world around us, the nations which surround us, or in the case of the church, the very nation in which we live. As he says in the next two verses, verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. There it is again. As the strangers are looking on and observing the people of God, what do they see? That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, it's exactly the same thing. What was true of Israel is true of us and vice versa. What's true of us was true of them. That she was to be a spiritual people. And she was meant to keep up her sense of this by remembering her relation to the priesthood continually. A priestly nation. In this she was to keep up a lively sense that she stood only by the grace of God as typified in the bloody sacrifice of the Passover. And her relation to the nations which surrounded her was to be that of a radical witness. Both in her commitment to the keeping of God's law, unlike the nations, as well as in her willingness to accept and to receive in her ranks all who share that same commitment. God would have us all live so that we might not only silence the objections of the godless. Verse 15 of First Peter chapter 2. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to, put, uh, to silence the ignorance of foolish men. But also that we might invite them in to join us in the feast. Supposing that they are truly converted like we. So again, we see how the spiritual society is meant to function. Radically different, radical witness, but we hope a growing fellowship. Our primary commitment is to the Lord. We commit all that we have to him, even our very selves. We confess and acknowledge that we would be no people but for his grace and that we exist only because he has made us so. And all of our lives is a celebration of that fact. And we seek to live in such a way that glorifies and honors him and which we hope encourage encourages others to ask us concerning the hope that is in us, that they, too, like us, might be saved and celebrate the feast along with us. Amen. And let us respond together to God's word by standing and singing hymn 109.
Receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.